This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Warriors of Michigan politics and government. Well, the candidates are coming to Michigan. Joe Biden, Democratic nominee for president, was in Macomb County on Wednesday and Thursday. President Donald Trump was in an airport hangar in Freeland, just north of Saginaw, before a monster crowd at a rally. But I want to talk about the issue that has consumed this state for the past six months. Yes, it's the coronavirus. The coronavirus is bad enough, but it has been the reaction to it by politicians that has consigned much of Michigan to endless suffering. It took 75 years, 11 governors, and 38 legislatures, remember those are two-year sessions of the legislature, to create a constitutional gridlock that has crippled the state's economy, closed schools and universities, destroyed businesses, suspended all sports and indoor and outdoor events, mandated face masks and social distancing, curtailed religious worship and funerals, poisoned political discourse even more than it already was, and damaged government's ability at all levels to address social and infrastructure challenges that will now grow ever worse. It all began with a classic law of unintended consequences passed way back in 1945 by the 63rd Michigan legislature. It was called the Emergency Powers of Governor Act, EPGA, let's call it, also known as the Riot Act. Clearly, the statute was enacted in response to the catastrophic 1943 Detroit race riot. The bill roared through the Republican-controlled legislature, but with a Democratic co-sponsor and bipartisan support in less than three weeks with no amendments. It was signed on May 25, 1945, by Republican Governor Harry Kelly, who never used it, and it the law has remained substantively unchanged ever since. One important point, the EPGA failed to provide any check on a runaway governor, although at the time nobody thought that would be necessary and it would not be a problem for three quarters of a century. Then, after 1945, a dozen years later, The 1957 flu pandemic hit the country, including Michigan. Democratic Governor G. Menon Soapy Williams, who had to deal with the Republican-controlled legislature, just as current Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer does today, never pulled the EPGA trigger. And neither did George Romney nor Bill Milliken in 1968 when another flu pandemic swept through the nation and recurred for three years into the 1970s. These two Republican governors faced a Democratic-controlled House of Representatives with the Senate closely divided. Flash forward to 2020, this year, when Whitmer chose a completely different approach. Whitmer's unprecedented use 
of the EPGA to make unilateral decisions about the state's response to the COVID-19 pandemic has never been used for such a purpose before. In fact, the EPGA had never been used for any purpose at all since 1970. That's half a century ago. When it was used before 1971, it was only to deal with local civil disturbance emergencies. According to a report released August 31st, authored by the Mackinac Center for Public Policy's research director, Michael Van Beek, whom we will be hearing from shortly. Before this year, the EPGA was used 11 times in response to five emergency situations. Labor unrest in Hillsdale in 1964, urban riots in 1967 and again in 1968, and twice in the year 1970, once for high mercury levels in Lake St. Clair and Lake Erie, and a second for a minor riot in Ypsilanti. Now, Mike Van Beek of the Mackinac Center says, quote, Governor Whitmer's interpretation and use of the EPGA is completely novel. Constitutional concerns followed previous uses of these powers, but Governor Whitmer has taken these to a new level. No other governor has attempted to use the EPGA to gain unilateral control over an emergency for an indefinite period, unquote. So we ask, has Whitmer been within her rights to break with three quarters of a century of interpretation of this particular issue? The courts certainly think so, at least so far. With the exception of a single judge, part of a dissent, the governor has won in court on virtually every challenge to her authority to use the EPGA as she sees fit. Every plaintiff in the lawsuits against her has lost or won at best only a partial, sometimes temporary victory. Only one judge who actually looked at what governors and successive legislatures said and did over time wrote in his opinion that use of the EPGA to address any kind of emergency other than civil disturbances, quote, doesn't make sense, unquote, in the eyes of elected officials who wrote the law. So we should not expect the state Supreme Court, which heard oral arguments and still another suit against Governor Whitmer's use of the EPGA, we should not expect the state Supreme Court to surprise us with some Solomonic wisdom or even common sense. Because when a piece of legislation is written as broadly as the 1945 Riot Act, it gives judges all the more excuse to make the wrong call. In this case, to allow one person, even a governor, to make arbitrary unilateral decisions that have caused massive damage to the state and so enraged a portion of her constituency that she has had to ask for more than a million dollars in extra security for the governor's residence in Lansing. So is there any hope for relief from this reign of terror? Yes, thousands of Michiganders have been circulating petitions to curtail the governor's emergency powers as Whitmer uses them to issue 
unilateral coronavirus orders. The group, and it has a lot of money, calls itself Unlock Michigan. If successful, its petition language, based on Michigan's constitutionally guaranteed power of citizen initiative, would repeal the 1945 Emergency Powers of Governor Act that Whitmer continues to use. Senate Majority Leader Mike Shirky, a Republican of Grass Lake in Jackson County, said Tuesday of this week that Unlock Michigan, in record time, has already met its goal of collecting 400,000 signatures by Labor Day and expects to have over 500,000 by the middle of the month. Only some 340,000 signatures are needed, and Shirky says that fly-specking of the John Hancocks collected so far, 400,000 of them, reveals that 93% are valid. So after being certified by the Secretary of State, the Republican-controlled legislature could vote to revoke the law yet this fall, and it would not be subject to the governor's veto powers. If the legislature rejects the petition language, it'll go on the ballot. Don't expect that to happen. So the state Supreme Court heard arguments this week, as I said, on the legal challenge to Whitmer's hijacking of the 1945 law. The case is Grand Health versus Whitmer. Could the high bench actually make the right call on this case? And if so, when and after the damage has been done? Don't look for anything good to happen from the Supremes. But let's hear what our guests have to say coming up in a few minutes. Stay tuned. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. Here we are again, and we are very fortunate to have with us uh, State Court of Appeals Judge Brock Swartzel, who is one of two candidates for the state Supreme Court this fall, November 3rd general election, nominated by the Republican Party. Uh, and I want to welcome you, Judge Swartzel. Thank you, Bill. I appreciate the time. Well, I just want to ask you right off the bat, uh, how do you campaign for this? I mean, this is tough. You're just nominated. You're not a household name throughout Michigan. You've got very little time to raise money and campaign. What do you do between now and November 3rd? You know, uh, you're absolutely right that this is a different campaign cycle than any we've seen. And so, you know, we're doing a lot of digital. Uh, We are doing some in-person events, uh, you know, uh, using the appropriate uh, social distancing and everything. We're doing a lot of uh, Zoom calls, a lot of conference calls. Uh, getting uh, my name out and my vision for the Supreme Court out on shows like yours. Uh, it's, a, it's an all-of-the-above um, approach. And, uh, you know, I have, uh, I have name recognition in a, in, in a quarter of the state. Uh, I'm on the, I, I represent the 4th District, which is all of northern Michigan, most of mid-Michigan, and all of the UP. But you're right, you know, there's a challenge of getting your name out there and uh, just working as absolutely hard as I can uh, through November 3rd. Judge Schwartzel, uh one of the things we talked about, in fact, the only thing we talked about earlier in the program was coronavirus and the response to it by Governor Gretchen Whitmer through her executive orders. And I believe you have already served on one three-judge 
Court of Appeals panel hearing a challenge to the governor's authority to do what she's doing. And what was that decision? How did you come down? And what do you think it means? Uh, yes, I was on a three-judge panel earlier in, uh, I believe it was in at the end of May. It involved uh, Mr. Mankin, the Owasso barber who, uh, you know, was being, uh, um, uh, the AG was trying to shut him down. Uh, we heard uh, it was it was kind of a procedural issue, but at the end of the day, I dissented from what my colleague uh, wanted to do, and my point was not who should win, but just that these issues, I believe, are maybe the most important issues that we've seen at least in a generation, maybe since 1963 when our Constitution uh, was enacted. Um, you know, this goes right to the core of separation of powers, and regardless of you know, what the correct answer is, I just think that we needed to resolve it uh, sooner rather than later uh, by, a, by a merits panel, not a motions panel, which, which uh, I was on at that time. And uh, I just thought full briefing, uh, oral argument, uh, et cetera, was what we needed to do. Um, ultimately, uh, through, you know, there were various uh, machinations, the Supreme Court uh, ultimately agreed with me, and a court of uh, appeals panel that I was not on heard the case at the end of August, or middle of August, and uh, the issues are now before the Supreme Court, and I believe they heard, uh, heard that oral argument just a couple of days ago. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. These oral arguments were heard this week at the Supreme Court level, and I guess they've asked for more briefs. That means kind of legal arguments uh, by, I guess, both sides in the dispute uh, that they want to look at, the Supreme Court wants to look at. Um, how do you view what's happening in the Supreme Court this week? Is this the be-all and end-all? I mean, whatever they decide, that's could have put an end to all this litigation? Um, I, I certainly hope so. Uh, I think it, you know, at least some vindication for my view that these issues are extraordinarily uh, crucial for us to answer, given the fact that the Supreme Court, I, I believe, heard oral arguments that extended beyond three hours. Now they're asking for supplemental briefing. Clearly, the justices are looking at this as, uh, you know, kind of a, a monumental uh, case. And I'm hopeful that uh, the, the opinion will come out. You know, I, I don't have any particular insight. I'm hoping by the end of September, early October, uh, just so that we can, we can have this uh, legal uncertainty resolved. Yeah, there's also a petition drive, a citizen petition drive initiative going forward that could collect the signatures uh, to put this before the legislature this fall. And the legislature could simply rubber stamp the petition language. And uh, what would that do if the Supreme Court uh, decides one way or another? Does it make any difference? What this petition language would do, as you know, would be to rescind the 1945 Emergency Powers of Governor Act the so-called riot act, just take it off the books. And I don't know whether they can do that with immediate effect. And if they do, that will leave in place only the so-called emergency management act of 1976, which requires legislative consent for the governor to issue an executive order beyond 28 days. What do you think about all that? I think uh, the legislature is going to be faced with uh, a very interesting choice if that petition language gets the necessary uh, uh, proper signature. 
Uh, I, I would probably disagree a little bit with your terminology in terms of a rubber stamp. Uh, my guess is if this language goes before the legislature, there will be vigorous debate on both sides. And so, um, you know, I, I served in the legislature as general counsel. I know on cases or on issues like this, there there is no rubber stamp. There is a ton of input from constituents, from interest groups, from the various um, uh, government agencies, and I'm sure the governor and the AG will, will chime in. So, you know, if this does go before the legislature, uh, it will be, you know, like what we see in the Supreme Court, just a monumental debate. Now, let me ask a slightly different question here. I heard your uh, podcast interview by Michigan Information and Research Service earlier this week, and they asked you, who are your judicial heroes, uh, people that you look to who have served on the bench, either state or federal? And I noticed that both of the people that you mentioned, and one was uh, a judge on the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, David McKeague, uh, as one of your idols, um, and the other was John Scalia, the late U.S. Supreme Court justice. But you didn't uh, cite any state judge, uh, anybody on the Supreme Court, either in the past here in Michigan or at any other level. Do you have any models, uh, or I'm not going to call them maybe heroes is too strong a word, that you look to at the state level, either in the past or now? Sure, and you know, I want to make clear, uh, probably the, the reason why I cite David McKeague is that I worked for him for five years. And so, uh, you know, certainly working with him uh, helped form and shape my judicial views. And so, you know, I, I think it's natural that uh, I would look to him as, as my model because I worked for him for so long. Uh, in terms of the state Supreme Court, you know, I, I think the, the model that I would look to is the person I'm trying to replace, uh, Judge Markman, um, or Justice Markman. Uh, he has had uh, a rule of law vision uh, on the court for years. He's been a strong uh, stalwart for uh, limited government, uh, separation of powers, um, the common law, and, uh, and the rule of law in general. And so he is certainly someone who... Uh, I look to uh, when I'm trying to decide, uh, you know, how best to approach a case. Yeah, and he cannot run again because he's reached the mandatory retirement age of 70. Thank you, Judge Brock Swartzel of the Michigan Court of Appeals, for some very good insights on this issue. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned with somebody who knows more than anybody in the state, I believe, on the history of the Emergency Powers of Governor Act passed in 1945 that we mentioned earlier. And, in fact, he probably knows more about efforts by various governors even before that time to deal with any kind of an emergency or crisis. And he also knows a lot about the Emergency Management Act passed in 1976. We're going to talk about all of that with Michael Van Beek, who is the research director for the Mackinac Center for Public Policy, very prestigious think tank, we'll call it, uh, in Midland. Welcome to the Political Insider, Michael Van Beek. 
Hey, Bill, thanks for having me on. Look, I just want to start out by asking you, um, where do you think we are right now with this uh, lawsuit, which I think the Mackinac Center supports fully, and in fact, maybe is a plaintiff in it? You can tell us. Uh, oral arguments were heard before the state Supreme Court this week on this issue. Uh, where do we stand right now on this challenge, this latest challenge, uh, to Governor Whitmer's authority? Yeah, so that's that's right. This Michigan Supreme Court heard oral arguments earlier this week on uh, uh, on Wednesday, and um, you know we should expect uh, a ruling potentially in the next few weeks. Um, and it is a lawsuit that that we filed, the Mackinac Center Legal Foundation filed on behalf of uh, some health providers who were uh, restricted in providing health care to patients, uh, and we also had uh, one patient uh, who was restricted from getting care. Uh, and this was during the time when uh, the governor um, uh, prohibited non-elective, or, or sorry, prohibited elective medical procedures. And since then, that order has been rescinded. Uh, and so that, that sort of point is not what the court is looking at any longer. What the court is looking at now is this much larger issue about separation of powers and whether or not, uh, you know, the governor can continue to use uh, unilateral control um, for as long as she determines an emergency still exists in the state. So that's really the, the big question that the Supreme Court is taking up now. Well, the Emergency Powers of Governor Act, the EPGA, the acronym, uh, has been in effect all this time, three-quarters of a century. Uh, do you think, uh, in your opinion, that Governor Whitmer's use of it now, certainly it's unprecedented, but uh, do you think, she has been wrong in perhaps deviating from her predecessor's use or non-use of it over time? Well, it's definitely unprecedented. So no no other governor has uh, used the law in this way. Um, you know, as you said, it was it was passed in 1945. Uh, one of the things that, that I, I found interesting in looking at the history of this thing is almost immediately uh, governors started kind of toying with the idea of what they could use this law for. So Kim, uh, Governor Kim Sigler, in 1947, uh, there was a, a labor strike uh, for the Michigan Bell uh, telephone workers, and the state was also experiencing widespread flooding. Uh, some people were saying it was the worst flood that the state has ever had, and uh, people couldn't communicate over the telephone because, in certain areas because of the strike. So Kim Sigler uh, said, well, I might, I might use this newly passed uh, EPGA thing to force all you workers to go back to work. Um, and it turned out to just be a threat, and he never did, and the strike broke, and, um, and, and things uh, uh, got sort of back to normal. But uh, later, uh, he considered using it again to set uh, prices for fuel oil because there was another labor strike uh, that was impact, impacting the price of fuel, and so he, he toyed with the idea there. He actually asked a legislative committee if he could use this, if there was something he could do, uh, to lower the price of fuel oil, and they said, sorry, there's not anything we can do to actually uh, make that happen. So um, it, 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 it has been uh, uh, toyed with being used outside of uh, situations uh, that didn't involve civil disturbances or riots, which was clearly the context in which it was created. But what Governor Whitmer has done and the way she's interpreting it is, is something that no other governor has, has attempted before. So it really is um, a fresh new legal question uh, for the Supreme Court to consider. 
Let me ask you a question that might be construed as a curveball I'm throwing you here, and that is in 1957 there was a flu pandemic that hit the country, including Michigan, and you had politically a situation pretty close to what we got right now. You had a Democratic governor, G. Menon Williams, Soapy Williams, and he faced a Republican legislature. And uh, have you found anything in your research that indicated that the governor did anything at that time or anybody did anything in state government at that time to combat the 1957 flu pandemic? Because I got to tell you, the uh, death toll from that pandemic, if you consider that the state was only about half as big as it is today in population, was just as bad at this point as the present coronavirus pandemic. I mean, it's hard for anybody to believe. I can hardly find anybody who even remembers the 1957 pandemic. Does that ring any bells with you? Yeah, I did I did look at uh, how the state responded to previous pandemics. Uh, obviously, you know, the 1918 one is one that a lot of people uh, remember, and it's considered the deadliest one. Uh, and uh, there was 1957 uh, and 1968 as well. There was another pandemic. And, right. Um, obviously, in 1918, the, the EPGA didn't exist. Uh, but in that instance, uh, the governor did, uh, Governor Sleeper at the time, did issue a proclamation that closed um, movie theaters and uh, churches uh, and left it up to local health departments to decide whether or not to close schools. Uh, but that only lasted a few weeks. That was in October of 1918, and that and uh, the governor was under immense pressure right away to open back up movie theaters, especially movie theaters in Detroit, uh, because uh, you know that was the most popular form of uh, entertainment at the time. Uh, uh, in the other instances, in 1957, 1968, I don't see any. I, I don't. I can't find any evidence uh, that the governors at the time did anything uh, related to those. There was there was a lot of uh, local health departments who were issuing guidance for uh, for citizens and things like that, uh, but no uh, statewide coordinated uh, effort that I could see. And then, of course, no uh, nothing uh, having a governor assume emergency powers. Um, to deal with those pandemics at the time either. Yeah. Let me ask this. Um, What did Governor Sleeper rely on for his issuing the orders he did in 1918 if the statute, the Emergency Powers Act, was not yet in effect, nothing else was in effect? Didn't he just use the broad language of the Constitution? It would have been the 1908 Constitution. Uh, to justify what he did, and could that be an argument for Governor Whitmer today uh, if, in fact, the Supreme Court rules against her? uh, Going forward, she could say, you know what, Uh, the Constitution gives me the authority to do what I'm doing, and I'm not even going to pay any attention to the EPGA or the Emergency Management Act of 76 or anything else. I'm just going to go with where Albert Sleeper went in 1918, only I'm taking it much farther. Uh, certainly that, that could be another approach uh, that the governor attempts, uh, potentially. But, um, it, it, again, it would be, it would be unprecedented uh, in the sense that when Governor Sleeper did it, uh, it's not clear that there were any sort of um, teeth behind uh, these orders. 
Uh, in fact, a lot of the language that he uses, it's very clear what he is hoping to do is to alert the citizens of the state about this problem and ask for their voluntary compliance um, to keep each other uh, to keep each other as safe as possible. So, uh, there, and and of course, that's this was also uh, playing out where local public health departments uh, were also issuing orders uh, about certain uh, businesses and churches and schools, and so uh, it, it was much more of a localized uh, event um, than what what we have now. I mean, one of the, a key difference as well in 1918 is, uh, you know, the, the numbers, the information that the government had about uh, the spread of that virus was much less than what we have now. Right. We've got to take a break. we got to take a break right now, but we'll be back in just a minute with Michael Van Beek, and we're going to continue this conversation. Thank you, Michael Van Beek. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back with Michael Van Beek, who is research director for the Mackinac Center for Public Policy in Midland, and he authored a very interesting report on August 31st detailing the history of the attempts by governors over time to deal with emergency situations of any sort, ranging from civil disturbances to pandemics. And as I understand it, Michael Van Beek, the Emergency Powers of Governor Act has not even been used for half a century since 1970 until this year when Governor Whitmer resurrected it in a dramatic and novel way. Uh, What happened uh, to make governors back away from using the EPGA and what did they decide to do in the 1970s to maybe supplement it or partially replace it or whatever else? Yeah, so it's a, it's a complicated history because we, you know, we have two emergency laws on the books, basically two laws that give uh, powers to limited uh, temporary powers to governors during emergencies. One of them is the 1945 Act, and then one of them is uh, the Emergency Management Act that was passed in 1976. And it it is it is interesting that the, uh, the use of the EPGA uh, through the 1960s uh, it was used several times by Governor George Romney in situations that were, you know, that are defined as riots. Uh, there was riots in, in, in 1967 and 1968, and there was also a labor uh, labor violence in Hillsdale in 1964 where he used it. Uh, but then in the 70s, uh, Governor Milliken made use of it for a, for a, a riot in, at Eastern Michigan University in 1970, but then he also used it to ban fishing when there were high mercury levels in Lake St. Clair and the St. Clair River. And interestingly, that ban actually got ruled unconstitutional in court. Um, but uh, after that, uh, the state and uh, Governor Milliken himself uh, sort of led an effort to create a new emergency response mechanism, a new system to give the governor emergency powers. And that was in 1976 to this new Emergency Management Act. So it uh, and that and that act. Uh, specifically mentions pandemics as one of the uh, purposes of it, uh, of its existence. So um, it is kind of a strange thing that we have had the one law in place while another new law was created to deal with pandemics. Uh, so the thinking at the time must have been that the EPGA 
was not sufficient or was not proper to use for emergencies like pandemics. And I think of course, that's a, a, yeah, that's an argument against the governor's position. Yeah, of course, one of the big differences I should point out, if it isn't apparent already, between the EPGA Riot Act of 45 and the Emergency Management Act is the Riot Act doesn't say anything about the legislature having to give permission to a governor to reinstitute or extend her order in time, whereas the 1976 law clearly does. It says after 28 days of an order for any reason that a governor issues, the legislature has to make a decision on whether to allow the governor to continue it or for how long or whatever. That is really kind of the crux of the problem that I think the state Supreme Court is trying to solve right now, isn't it? It absolutely is uh, definitely related to the separation of powers issue. Uh, interestingly, when Governor Romney used the EPGA in the 60s during riots, uh, he, he would issue a new executive order uh, sometimes every day, uh, which would sort of redeclare uh, the emergency and uh, the use of these localized powers to deal with the riot. It, it was almost as if Governor Romney... Uh, thought that he that this uh, emergency had sort of a natural expiration of you know immediately like a day long potentially. Uh, but then the other the other interesting thing about uh, that time limit is that when the 1976 Act was um, was passed, uh, one version of it that passed uh, the the Senate I believe didn't have that time limit in it. And then it wasn't until later uh, that a substitute bill added it in, and initially it was 14 days only. So from 1976 until 2002, the limit on the Emergency Management Act was only 14 days. But then in 2002, they expanded it to, they doubled it to 28 days when they modified it and added some more language um, related to terrorism activities. Um, Obviously, that was in the wake of 9-11. That's really interesting because 2002, John Engler, Republican, still would have been governor in his last year, and you would have had a Republican-controlled legislature. So uh, obviously, uh, right now, uh, the governor, even Governor Whitmer, uh, with her novel extension in power under the EPGA, she's put a time limit on her orders. I mean, she has said, I'm going to extend it until, and she mentions a time certain. She doesn't just say, I'm reinstituting it and I'm not going to pay any more attention to it until I decide I need to rescind it. Uh, unlike George Romney, who, as you say, was renewing it every day, saying, okay, I'm, I'm justifying what I've been doing by looking at it every day. Uh, Governor Whitmer says, okay, I'll keep looking at it, but I'm not going to do it in just a day. I, you know, it's, but she did put a timeline on it. What do you think about all that? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's a confusing legal position that the governor uh, is taking, in my opinion, because yet she is kind of uh, subjecting herself to the time limit that is in the Emergency Management Act in the 1976 law by renewing these emergencies every 28 days. But uh, her argument actually in court is that she doesn't have to do any of that because she can use the EPGA to just declare an emergency for however long she says it exists. So, uh, And she also, when she... uh, issues these executive orders, she says in there, I issue this executive order through the Emergency Management Act to the extent that I can, um, even though I'm not getting the legislature's approval, which is clearly required in the law. 
So it's, I mean, it's a really <laughs> sort of convoluted uh, legal position. And, um, well, it's, as we've said, it, it's just entirely novel. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a new interpretation and something that, the, the, you know, the court is going to have to make a decision about, um, hopefully very soon. We're running out of time, but just one last question. This petition drive, initiative petition, uh, let's say it sends the initiative to the legislature this fall. They get the signatures they need. The legislature says, okay, we are going to approve this petition language, which basically rescinds the 1945 EPGA and just leaves in place the 1976 Emergency Management Act. Let's say that happens while the court is ruling one way or another. We don't know how they're going to rule on the lawsuit. Uh, going forward, what kind of confusion might this uh, result in? Well, it could result in, depending on what the courts say, uh, you know, every executive order that the governor issued after April 30 could be invalidated. Um, but the governor has a, a way to smooth this all out and to uh, bring sense to it if that sort of uh, if that happens, and that is she could declare an emergency under the Emergency Management Act, uh, and the difference would be after 28 days, she will have to work with the legislature in order to extend that emergency. So um, there, she will have to compromise in some way to get the legislature either to extend that act and give her additional uh, powers to deal with coronavirus, or um, they will have to uh, end the emergency and deal with uh, responding to COVID through normal means of governing, uh, which obviously the legislature is capable of doing now. Um, you know, they're passing bills and uh, you know, doing their normal business. So uh, that would be the way that we would respond to COVID. What about the language in the Constitution? Let's forget about laws, statutes, EPGA, emergency management. The Constitution seems to give the governor a lot of power. There's very general language in one clause in the Constitution. Could she just say, look, I have the power under the Constitution to do anything I want to? Um, she could. Uh, it would be, I think it would be even a, a, a further stretch than, um, than what she's trying to do with the EPGA. Uh, so I, I, don't, uh, I don't think that would be a, a successful legal strategy. But uh, the, the other thing, of course, that the governor could do and that uh, is complicating all of this uh, in addition, is that uh, the Michigan Department of uh, Health and Human Services has uh, uh, epidemic orders that they can issue that uh, can do things like limit gatherings uh, amongst people, and it can be statewide. And local health departments have the ability to do this as well. So there are rules that health departments can um, institute that would do some of the same things that the governor um, wants to do. So We'll have to see. That might be another avenue that the governor explores um, if these powers of hers are deemed uh, uh, not uh, not properly used. Well, we could go on and on and on debating this, discussing this. But honestly, Michael Van Beek, you've given about as good an explanation as anybody's ever going to find or read anywhere about the history of the Emergency Powers of Governor Act and what the lawsuit is all about that's before the state supreme court right now thank you so much michael van beek research director of the mackinac center for public policy for being our guest thanks bill my pleasure we'll be back next week with still more 